What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. The reason to write the book was not just to share these insights with the world. And I had gotten to the point in, in my research career where I felt like I did have clear insights worth sharing, but also so many myths worth dispelling. If you hang out on the self-help aisle, you can come away with the impression that more confidence is better, right? That your challenge in life is to prove the doubters and the haters wrong and to maximize your self-confidence. But that's crazy. Why did I become an executive coach? I saw lots of great people fail to get ahead at work, while their much less talented peers blew right past them. That made me furious, but also curious. What were great people getting wrong? It came down to helping them re-examine what drove success and then helping them make critical shifts one hard truth at a time. Feel like you're doing everything you were told but you're not moving ahead at work nor having the impact you seek? Then welcome to 97% Effective with Michael Winderoth, where we skip feel-good, happy talk and engage experts in pointed conversations about what it really takes to move the needle at work and your career. So if you feel stalled or frustrated or seek that extra edge as you move to the next level, then look no further. This is the Hard Truths Playbook you never got. Hi, I'm Michael Wenderoth, and you're listening to 97% Effective. Visualize two images, a cliff and quicksand. The cliff represents overconfidence. Step too far, and you're going to get yourself in deep trouble. The quicksand represents underconfidence, ruminating, taking no action, feeling helpless. That takes you nowhere. What's the optimal amount of confidence to have so you advance, but don't fall over that cliff? And how do you find that optimal amount? Let's be honest, finding it is really hard because there is a lot going on around us that pushes us towards that cliff. Like every day we're told, be more confident, and that confidence will lead you to success. And in much of the leadership industry, we're told that confidence signals competence So even if you're not feeling confident inside, you're better off faking it, lest you be viewed as weak and get dismissed. So it's no wonder when we follow this advice, we end up picking and elevating very charismatic, often narcissistic leaders whose overconfidence leads to really bad decisions, governance, and leadership. Catastrophic overconfidence that pushes us over the cliff. So what is an honest, thoughtful executive who wants to rise, make an impact, make good organizational decisions do? Well, the answer and tools you need are in a brilliant book, Perfectly Confident, by today's guest, who I'm honored to have, Professor Don Moore at Berkeley's Haas School of Business. Don is a world expert in decision-making and the leading scholar on the topic of confidence and overconfidence. And when it comes to confidence, he wants to help you find the middle way 
which can elevate all areas of your work and life. And he fits right into the theme of the podcast, which dispenses with happy talk and favors hard, evidence-based truths over comforting lies. Don Moore is Associate Dean and holds the Lorraine Tyson Mitchell Chair in Leadership at Berkeley's Haas School of Business in California. He received his bachelor's degree in psychology from Carleton College and his PhD in organizational behavior from Northwestern University. His research interests include overconfidence, and that means including when people think they are better than they actually are, when people think they are better than others, and when people are too sure they know the truth. Quoted widely and published widely in all the major press, he is the author of two books with Max Bazerman, Judgment in Managerial Decision-Making, one of the best-selling textbooks in the field, and more recently, Decision Leadership. And as he writes in his bio, he is only occasionally overconfident. Now, all of those accolades you're going to forget when I tell you this next one. He has taught negotiations to leadership guru Tony Robbins and his platinum partners. And Don's overconfidence led him to get burned, literally, when he walked on fire at one of Tony's events. On a personal note, (laughs) while I always have a few butterflies before speaking to my esteemed and world expert guests, this one was particularly acute. Don is a college classmate who I hold in very high esteem, particularly after reading a lot of his research preparing for this interview. So I exercised defensive pessimism. Okay, that's a concept he shares in the book and another reason you want to read it, but it's a very useful way to calibrate your confidence. Anyway, defensive pessimism encouraged me to over-prepare so we would have an engaging and helpful discussion for you. So I hope I have followed Don's book and the many very useful prescriptions there to calibrate my confidence today as host appropriately. Don! I'm so excited. Uh, welcome to 97% Effective. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. Uh, with o- overly generous introductions like that, boy, you're really putting me at risk of indulging in overconfidence. I have to uh, remind myself of all the reasons why I need to stay humble. But I'm really excited to be with you and, and excited to talk. Let's go right at that because you end your bio that Don is only occasionally overconfident. And I want to zero in on just a concrete personal and practical example. For you, Don, (laughs) where does overconfidence show up? Oh, Michael, you're hitting me where it hurts, man. (laughs) You you give some examples in your book, (laughs) but, but share with us one, where does it, you know, overconfidence show up for you? How do you identify that? And what practical strategy, presumably from your book, do you use to keep it in check? Lots to talk about. Um, so if if my wife were with us, she would tell you stories about circumstances in which I was too sure that I was right. And I try really hard to keep that in check because in the words of a wise marriage counselor, you can be right or you can stay married. Mm. So how do I keep that in check? Well, so I try my hardest to listen to my wife's wise loving, corrective influence. I seek out the critical feedback of my colleagues, my students, my bosses, and I try to pay as close attention as I can to the 
corrective influence of the world, paying attention to evidence mm. and using it to help me calibrate my beliefs. We're, we'll get into this more, I assume, as we talk, but I have to, like all of us, I am inclined to listen to and believe the evidence that suggests I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. And so I try to keep systematic track of things like the accuracy of my forecasts, mm. such that I can identify mistakes that I'm making. It's easy to drink the Kool-Aid and to believe the uh, flattering mischaracterizations that uh, come your way, especially as you rise in your career. And so um, uh, when I was at the Tony Robbins uh, Unleash the Power Within workshop, and he was telling us all how amazing we were and how we were going to push through our greatest fears by walking on fire. Man, I was lapping it up. And I didn't listen quite hard enough to the part where he said, make sure you get the hot embers washed off your feet by the Los Angeles Fire Department when you get to the other side. And I suffered the consequences that day. So I am hearing, um, you know, one, you're very systematic about it. You take these or try to get these outside views, wife and colleagues, and that you actively seek out things that don't necessarily confirm what you do, which is kind of a lot of pieces, central pieces in your book. So <laughs> I'm hearing that. And you're still married and you're still happily <laughs> married. So clearly you are exercising those well. And that takes me, Don, to a very kind of practical question, right, for listeners. As you said in your book documents, we are really bad at accessing ourselves. We think we're more accurate. We're better at forecasting. We're better than we are. We're all above average. Should we just assume, because your research, I mean, a lot of research here shows all humans are overconfident, or is there, you know, if someone's out there and saying, you know, when they look at your book and they see this calibration scale, where am I on that scale right now? Is there like an efficient way to kind of know like, oh, you're like way overconfident or you're not? The, the, the assumption that, that you ask about, just to assume I'm overconfident in all things, I think that that is problematic because underconfidence is a real problem. Most of us know it by the name, the imposter syndrome, the circumstance in which smart, capable people begin to fear that they're not good enough, that they don't have what it takes. My guess is most of us have encountered this in one form or other. When, often when we undertake some new challenging activity, when you're new at some company, when you, you attempt some new task, and it's really hard, and you're messing up, and you're not sure that you have what it takes to push through and figure it out. When we're struggling with these challenges privately, that is when we are most at risk of allowing the imposter syndrome to really undermine our chance to succeed. So when the first year MBA students show up here at the Haas School and it's been years since they've been in class or taken a test and they're challenged by their core professors and their core classes their first semester and they find themselves at home struggling to make it through dense readings and challenging assignments, Many of them are tempted to think, maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I'm not cut out for this. Maybe I should quit. The thing that they don't know is how many of their smart, talented classmates are at home struggling with the exact same questions. 
So gathering information about how you're doing and where you stand can be enormously helpful. So for people who are starting out at a, at a new company and a new job, seeking the counsel and the mentoring of those who've endured the challenges with which you're struggling, senior people at the company who've pushed through those doubts and have made it into the higher ranks, talking to them about how they made it, talking to them about the times when they doubted themselves um, can be very helpful. It's possible that those conversations reveal areas where you really do need to exert special effort because what you're experiencing is, is unique to you. And then there'll be other places where you realize, okay, this is exactly the sort of self-doubt everyone experiencing experiences in these challenging roles. I'm as good as the other people with whom I'm competing for advancement. So gathering kind of input or, or what's actually going on out there. I mean, you took me back, Don, to after my first year across, right? We can still talk about Stanford. I was at Stanford GSB and the first year was terrible. And all those things went through my mind and I didn't reach out, but we had this tradition. A letter was put in our boxes back then that you've probably gone through this. It was coming kind of at the end of the first quarter. And that was this enormous relief, and it got people talking. So that was actually kind of an interesting organizational design thing that was done to help facilitate those conversations, which very much, okay, we're going to get ahead, but gets into your idea of kind of designing architecture to facilitate and make these things happen. I love that idea. That is great. And notably, it is one of the um, sources of comfort that first-generation students often don't know to ask for. So we, we know that students whose families haven't been to college drop out of college at higher rates. And that's one of the reasons they fail to seek the support that they need, imagining that the challenges that they're facing and the struggles that they're enduring are unique to them because they are not good enough or not as well prepared. When the, the smart kids whose parents went to college, they, they know to avail themselves of that help and support. Yeah. So let's dive in to your book, Don. Perfectly Confident pulls together a lot of research you've done and in the field. What's the quick backstory on why you wrote it? And what's one central idea that, that you want people to take away when they read it? Oh, man. So I, I've sort of been obsessed with the study of confidence and overconfidence for the past 23 years now. And the reason to write the book was not just to share these insights with the world. And I had gotten to the point in, in my research career where I felt like I did have clear insights worth sharing, but also so many myths worth dispelling. If you hang out on the self-help aisle, you can come away with the impression, as you noted in your introduction, that more confidence is better, right? That your challenge in life is to prove the doubters and the haters wrong and to maximize your self-confidence. But that's crazy, right? To believe that you can leap tall buildings in a single bound, that your investments will return um, infinite, uh, um, infinite returns in the next year, that everybody in the world loves you, that you're immortal and that success is guaranteed. That does not contribute to either um, your popularity um, or to your uh, life expectancy. Being well calibrated, paying attention to the evidence and accurately understanding yourself is enormously helpful, not only for success in one's career, but also in one's personal relationships to understand the many gifts we have to offer and our own limitations. So 
going right at it, I mean, a lot of people see, and we see these great examples of leaders who are confident. That one is, is you really attack it in the book that confidence causes success. You want to just say more about that really quickly? Cause, <laughs> yeah. cause you do hammer on that and very rightly and spoken like a, a, st- a statistician also. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, so um, thank you for that invitation. I won't shy away from the nerdy statistical reinterpretation of the evidence, but first let's consider the evidence. Confidence and success are intimately correlated with one another. Confident athletes win, confident politicians get elected, and confident entrepreneurs get funded. It is tempting to take away from those facts the idea that confidence causes success. But any statistician will tell you that correlation does not imply causation. And that if you see two variables correlated with one another, you, you, what, if you want to test the causal nature of that relationship, what you want is an experiment. If the claim is that confidence increases success, you want an experiment where you manipulate confidence without manipulating all the things that come with it. What comes with it? Oh my gosh, a ton, right? Which athletes are more confident? Well, those who are more capable. Confidence grows with practice and performance and the true understanding that you actually have what it takes to succeed, right? Simone Biles was not just the greatest of all time because she was confident and believed in herself. She was great because she practiced and practiced and practiced. That work translated into faith that she could do it. And when she lost that faith, as she conspicuously did at the Olympics, when she lost herself in the air and started to fear for her own safety, she also had the wisdom to pull back, right? What gave her confidence to engage in the competition and what gave her the wisdom to withdraw was a well-calibrated sense of her own abilities. More confident politicians can be more confident because they know they have a strong standing, that they, are, that they actually have support among the voters who matter. Strong, confident business people can be legitimate in their confidence when they know they have a product that consumers want. So if you want to try to manipulate, if you want to answer the question, does confidence by itself contribute to success? Well, then you need an experiment where you manipulate confidence without manipulating all of that other stuff that comes with it. In my lab, we have attempted to do so in a whole bunch of different experiments. And my sad confession is that we have a great deal of trouble identifying any causal effect of confidence on performance. Why? It's a good question why we would fail to get that effect, because there's so many reasons to think that confidence could increase performance, right? When people hear that result, they're like, oh, come on. But certainly there are circumstances in which um, confidence gives people the persistence to keep trying. Yes. And the more sure you are you have it in the bag and you don't need to practice, the less likely you are to invest the effort 
that actually contributes to success. The students in my class who are most sure they're going to ace the exam and therefore don't study are not those who get the best grades. Correlation and causation. Uh, very important point, and I love those examples. While we're busting myths here, Don, the other one that really comes up, you know, this power of positive thinking and positive visualization. You allude to how you, as a fa in fact, when you were younger, read, uh, listened to a lot of those self-help tapes, right? Norman Vincent Peale. <laughs> I thought he was great. So say more about this because, again, the, the belief there is, you know, visualize positive, and you touched on this with, you know, with the students, but that doesn't necessarily need to lead to better results. Yeah, simply visualizing positive outcomes is not enough to assure those outcomes. In studies of visualization, most of the evidence suggests it doesn't do jack unless it comes early enough in the process that it can actual ena actually enable practice and investment that give you the skills and the uh, abilities that it really takes to perform. So just imagining your success you could imagine could be a helpful corrective if you are suffering the imposter syndrome and you are underconfident in your in the erroneous belief that you're not good enough or that you're worse than others. But simply visualizing success is as much as it might make you feel good. Um, you can't count on that to, to make you succeed uh, by itself. Now, it's worth noting that it does make you feel good. And that is the siren song. Mm -hmm of happy talk, right? So the comforting lies implied by overconfident beliefs that you have what it takes, never give up, you'll succeed. Mm, um, it can make you feel good in the moment, but if it leads you to invest in losing courses of action, if it leads you to take strong stances that later make you look like an idiot when you turn out to have been wrong, then it ultimately, what it makes you feel good in the moment will prove costly in the long term. And it's worth asking whether that's a trade, a wise trade-off to make. Mm. And what you really suggest here, Don, and I alluded to at the beginning, is to find this middle way to calibrate uh, your confidence between underconfidence and overconfidence. So the middle way is almost is very Berkeley, very Zen. I know that's where you're based. <laughs> Not exactly like flashy headline material that's going to get tons of likes or go viral necessarily. You know, we, we've alluded to the significant costs of, of under and overconfidence, but anything you just want to emphasize here as you, you promote the unsexy middle way or how that's been received, <laughs> you know, since your book has been out? Yeah. Uh, so my my institution, the, the Haas School of Business, has as four defining leadership principles, of which my favorite is confidence without attitude. So we aspire to provide for our students well-grounded confidence in their own abilities to achieve and relieve them of the attitude that might come across as arrogance or overconfidence about their abilities. So it's easy to highlight the ways in which overconfident business people can get themselves into trouble by claiming too much, overpromising. We have seen a reckoning in Silicon Valley among entrepreneurs, leaders of organizations who really overplayed their uh, product's ability to perform, overestimated 
shamelessly their future business prospects, wound up attracting investment um, and then paying for it in the long term. Some of them with prison time, but uh, many of them with a failure of their enterprises. So the, the siren song of happy talk that uh, can make us feel good in the moment and can even receive, as you know, the attention and adulation of other professionals, um, that, that it, it comes with great dangers, uh, because, um, when you fail to deliver on those grand promises in the long term, uh, the consequences can be very costly. I didn't know that confidence without attitude, <laughs> tons of friends who, who were at, at Haas, uh, and colleagues. And you know what, that pretty much does characterize all of them to a T. So you guys are doing a great, <laughs> great job on that. You started talking about confidence and, you know, particularly this area of overconfidence, which, you know, you're a world expert on. And you write that, you know, this is, you call it the mother of all biases, the kind of gateway bias. Can you give us, you know, share an example that research really shows convincingly repeatedly that we're overconfident? Just one example to kind of give people a flavor of, of where this really plays out. Yeah. Okay. You're inviting me to get down into the weeds here a little bit in, in, in my research and, and be careful what you, what you <laughs> encourage a professor to do. But uh, in answering your question, I'm going to attempt to distinguish the different ways in which confidence manifests itself in people's lives. In my bio, I noted uh, that overconfidence sometimes means thinking that you're better than you are. An overestimate of what your company's revenues will be next quarter or of how far you can jump. Um, overplacement is the exaggerated belief that you're better than others. When I ask my MBA students in an attempt to moderate their confident attitudes, uh, to place themselves relative to the class in various skills and abilities, how attractive they are, how honest they are, on average, they rate themselves in the 70th percentile relative to the class in honesty. So on average, they all think that they're more honest than others. And then the third type of overconfidence is excess certainty that you're right, overprecision. And that name comes from one of its manifestations, which is subjective probability distributions that are too tight. When you ask about a quantitative estimate, whether that's next quarter's revenues or the height of Mount Everest or how much office space you're going to need next year, people can make some forecast. And the way that most organizations invite their people to, to forecast is they identify the person who knows the most about some topic and ask them for a point estimate. So product manager, what are sales going to be next quarter? Give me your estimate in uh, pounds or units or whatever. But it's not going to be that number. What does that person believe about the distribution of possible sales figures? And how wide is that distribution? Is it well calibrated with respect to their actual uncertainty? And overprecision manifests itself in subjective probability distributions that are too tight. When you ask, how sure are you that sales are going to be within 5% of your estimate? And they give you numbers like 80%. But when you go back and look at the record, you do that for a while. And you ask, how often is the truth inside their 80% confidence intervals? And the answer is like 30% of the time. Mm. That suggests that they're too sure of the accuracy of their forecasts. So these are ways that it, 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 it manifests um, in us, in our decisions, in the forecasts. And, and you've got some great examples where you put people through this in the book that you then suddenly <laughs> realize, oh, I am overconfident in my ability to predict and forecast. 
You've been listening to 97% Effective with your host, executive coach, Michael Winderoff. If this interview is making you think, make sure to share it with a friend. Now, back to our interview. There are many strategies to, to manage these different areas that you've highlighted. Would you highlight one here that, that would be you know practical takeaway for someone listening of something they could implement right away um, yes. if they're now worried <laughs> that they're overconfident? Keep track and keep score. Hold yourself to account. So when it comes to important things like anticipating how much you're going to like some job, how much money some new product is going to make, um, uh, what the likelihood of rain is on a particular day, keep track of these beliefs that you have about future states of the world. Keep track of your estimates of uh, how um, how much money you think your, your investments are going to return next year, and then follow up. That will help you correct your errors. And this works not just subjectively, but interpersonally, right? Companies that, as you described, run the risk of promoting the big talkers, if they pay attention to confidence and are not closely attuned to the risks of overconfidence, if they promote those who can promise to achieve the most, they will also be selecting the ones who have most overestimated their future achievements. Voters make this mistake with politicians all the time. I'm going to bring back coal. Really? So being appropriately skeptical of the claims of others, holding them to account by keeping track and keeping score, right? Companies bet all the time on the forecasts of their employees. How much factory capacity are we going to invest in producing this new phone? How big a a, uh, factory do we need to build in order to produce the batteries that we think our customers are going to be buying from us in the future? These are big stakes decisions with asymmetric loss functions above and below the point estimate, right? Sometimes it's way worse to build a factory that's too big and then to have excess production capacity. Other times it's way worse to uh, build a factory that's too small and not be able to satisfy customer demand. And being able to use that knowledge of the asymmetric costs of over and under estimates depends fundamentally on having some guess about the distribution. How sure are you your forecast is right? If you can help your people track their accuracy and learn from that record, not just for themselves, but for each other, you will be doing them a great service in helping them calibrate their confidence judgments and get better over time. When inside it feels like I'm 95% sure, and every time I felt 95% sure, I've written down my my forecast and I've been right 40% of the time, mm, <laughs> you have a lesson to learn there. <laughs> Keep track. Keep score. And, and very quickly, because you have talked, and I, and I feel like it's one of the central messages of the book of, of thinking probabilities, thinking probability distributions. For, for some people out there, they kind of maybe get the idea, but they're like, well, the decision is go or no go. How can there be like a, a probability distribution there? Can you just explain that important concept and yeah. how to think in that, even if it's a yes or no final decision? Thanks for that invitation. It, it is a somewhat nuanced concept, and, and, and I'm, I'm happy to try to do it justice. So, so let me give it a shot. 
the it's true many of our decisions in life are go and no go. And things happen or they don't. And so it can be tempting to draw from those two hard facts that thinking in uncertainties and degrees of confidence and probabilities, well, that, that's not so useful. But the truth is the future is hard enough to predict that it's worth thinking about it in probability terms. And those probabilities can inform our go, no go decisions in really useful ways. And, and just a really simple sort of caricature of an example, the decision to jump. You're on a hike, you find yourself in a spot where you wanna to get to the other side of a chasm. You could leap the gap, and if you can jump far enough and the gap is small enough, you could be fine. The error of underestimating how far you can jump isn't so bad, right? Uh, you you um, might wind up getting further across the other side than you had guessed, um, or you might wind up chickening out and finding the long way around instead. The error of having overestimated how far you can jump in that circumstance is way more costly. You fall to your death. So that, that is one small domain in which Correctly estimating the probabilities helps you think through the expected values of going for it, taking the risk, or paying the cost to take the safe backup option. And at some point, I hope we'll get into the interesting challenge of hedging bets and the circumstances under which you might want to buy some insurance against a risk that you have calculated in your future, despite your interest in taking the risk. Mm. Great example of probabilities and thinking about, you also brought up this point about expected values. I do want to shift gears, and, and we'll, we may get time to come back to that topic you just raised, but it is this huge conundrum that, that, that comes up, which we have alluded to, but let's hit it right on. The dilemma that I see with a lot of, of these very honest, hardworking executives who want to do the right thing and make the best decisions for their orgs. And the question is, you know, how do I show up with confidence, which others may need to see or does signal competence or gets me promoted, when I think I'm maybe not so confident or I am confident, but there's huge risk. And if I share some of that information <laughs> that this program that I've been kind of told to lead has a low chance of success and I express that and I look not so confident, I'm going to get the rug pulled out from under me or someone else will be put in charge of the project. And the area I'd love you to address here is there is, of course, all these things that orgs and their culture and their systems could do. What many people out there and I hear as an executive coach is, you know what, I'm going into the meeting next week, <laughs> the board meeting, and I need to be told I'm showed confidence, you know, be overconfidence, even some hyperbole that exists in this company, because that is what is rewarded. But man, there's a lot of risk here. And I don't know how to express that without looking or being perceived as weak. How do you thread this? It's a really tough one. And I know you've done some research and you have a strong view on, on how to navigate this well. 
Yeah, first I wanna acknowledge the challenge that you're identifying. It is spot on. There are lots of places in which executives, leaders and would-be leaders are invited to show up with a great deal of confidence. And this is especially poignant when when, um, people have the sense that they're up against others who are perhaps not as ethical or as well calibrated as they are and whose exaggerations run the risk of leading them to lose out. If, if their entrepreneur's pitching to a VC and the VC just has to pick one of them, well, if the next one is not as well calibrated as you, as sh- is shameless in their um, exaggeration, well, you, you might worry, oh, I'm going to lose out to that other person um, who comes across as more confident than I do. Okay, so a, a few thoughts on this. First of all, um, it's worth noting the different dimensions of confidence expression. So you can speak with a great deal of passion and commitment that displays your enthusiasm for the, the ideas that you're promoting for your product um, without overclaiming what it is that, that you can actually deliver. Second, you can um, encourage the, your audience, the VC, to recognize the um, temptations of everybody to um, exaggerate and to note that you're not playing that game. Um, It's easy to identify um, examples of successful entrepreneurs who have found a way to be uh, both, uh, both honest and confident. I love the example of the young Jeff Bezos who warned early investors in Amazon. uh, I think the upside of this, uh, little project is pretty big. So I think investment has a positive expected value, but there are all sorts of ways in which my little startup could fail. So I think there's like a 70% chance that thing's going to go belly up and I'm going to lose all the money that you give me. But the upside's big enough. I think it's, it's going to be worth it. That turned out to be pretty good advice. And it is a practice that Bezos continues at Amazon. So Amazon has become famous for its six-page memos in which anytime the company is planning to undertake some risky new project, it invites the project's champion to put together the best case they can make for that for the company to take the risk to undertake that project. Um, and they make that case in a six-page memo that then gets discussed at a meeting that begins by everybody sitting and reading that memo. And conspicuously, the memo is supposed to include not just the upside, and not rosy projections, but best estimates of a product's viability in the market, what the risks are of failure, what the expected value of the investment is, and key decision points along the way that would uh, provide opportunities to pull the plug, right? If sales haven't reached such and such a figure in six months, we're going to cut funding to the project and call it a day on that one. Um, companies like Amazon and Google attempt to celebrate well-intentioned failure, projects undertaken, pro- pro- projects with positive expected values, but risky projects that sometimes fail. That's okay. Innovation depends on taking those risks. And the way you express that, so, so it's expressing with confidence 
and acknowledging the risk, talking about the probabilities, but doing that in a confident and not that you need to go up there and lie and exaggerate, which can get you in trouble. And this goes to, there was a, there was a nice piece of research that I saw that you compared verbal and nonverbal yes. shows of overconfidence yeah, yeah, yeah. and people got much more penalized when they verbalize something. And does, is this linked to what you said before about the nonverbal? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you can convey enthusiasm, commitment, and passion without making a grandiose claim about future sales. You can say the upside here is huge without overestimating its actual likelihood. The, uh, the, the paper that you're talking about identified a trap that is created for aspiring leaders by audience members, voters, or investors who um, are insufficiently attentive to the substantive claims implied by the person's presentation or their arguments or, or uh, their pitch. Um, and that is that you can, you can make vague verbal assurances about what you can do. This is going to be the greatest product ever. We're going to revolutionize the market. It's going to change the world. What, what does that mean in terms of sales, right? What are, what are revenues going to look like in, in a year? And if you're the VC who's got to make choices about where to invest your limited resources, well, you'd like to have some, some hard numbers on that. And, and um, I think this trap catches catches many leaders. Um, in in some of my writing, I've attempted to provide uh, good advice for honest leaders who recognize that trap and um, don't want to fall into it. And there is good news on this score that you can maintain as a leader. You can maintain your credibility and also deliver honest and self critical assessments. Um, by saying, for instance, I'm confident that the probability of this project's success is 70%. You're not lying to people and saying success is guaranteed. We're going to succeed no matter what. You're saying, we've done a thorough analysis. We've considered the risks. We've red teamed this and tried to identify all of the weaknesses in this plan. And there are real weaknesses. There are ways in which it could go south. The world is unpredictable. Pandemics happen. Administrations change. Sometimes the wind blows in a direction we hadn't anticipated. So I'm not going to pretend like that's not a risk. But we have a plan, and we know to how to identify those risks when they come our way. Basically, I'm confident this project has a higher probability of success than the alternatives. Um, it's not Success is not guaranteed, but this is the best course of action forward. So that research and the strategy and the example of how you have outlined that, Don, that is pure gold. That is addressing what so many <laughs> honest and well-meaning executives run up against, particularly in the perceived culture of hyperbole, and you've got to show up and exaggerate and lie. So thank you for sharing that. It's very helpful to people. I, I want to ask you too, because two, two things in your, in your research stood out. One was, and not to blanket this, uh, you had made a reference in the book that some of the research you had done, there were, in terms of overconfidence, 
No real differences you saw in terms of gender between women and men. And another one that looked at cultural across countries, Anglo or Western countries compared to Asian countries. Again, not much cultural difference there showing up in the data on overconfidence, meaning that, well, it's either universal um, or we're more alike than we're unalike. And so I, because difference and a lot of research now is looking at how you know gender and culture impacts what we think we know, can you just speak to this and some of the findings? They're probably you know, still going on, but I'd love to hear what you have found in terms of differences and its impact on overconfidence. Yeah, thanks for that invitation. Because uh, there's been much talk of, of uh, gender and culture differences in, in confidence and overconfidence. I must admit my own challenge is replicating some of those effects, which is not to say that the original authors did anything wrong or misrepresented their results. Just my, my results from my lab uh, undermine my confidence in stable differences between men and women or between people of different different cultures. It, um, so different, there are undoubtedly like d different linguistic norms about the ways that, that uh, different cultures express confidence. But as a, as a scholar and a psychologist, my fascination is with the study of overconfidence. And in order to assess overconfidence, you have to pin people down with some falsifiable claim. So the, in my attempts to do that, I, I, I don't find... Uh, big differences between men and women. So this is weird. Uh, the stereotype of men is that uh, um, we always think we're right. That right. That's why in uh, back in the battle days when they had to ask people for directions, men never wanted to ask for directions. It's why we mansplain to others. But if that means that people um, attach a higher level, a higher likelihood to them being right on something like, um, you know, uh, what sales are going to be next quarter or um, the probability of a certain politician getting elected or whatever. Like, I can't find that in my data. And there are, uh, there do appear to be some uh, cross-national differences. And interpreting them is, is complicated. They don't map onto stereotypes at all. So it's not the case that um, Westerners express greater certainty or make narrower 90% confidence intervals than do people from East Asian country, uh, East Asian countries. In fact, sometimes we find the opposite, such that when they're estimating the probability of being right, um, our Chinese respondents are somewhat more overconfident than our American respondents. Uh, it's it's complicated and there are inconsistencies between different measures, and um, so I, I'm reluctant to make any strong claim. Okay, so it's it's difficult to measure. There has been some initial research, but we're far from the point of you being a scholar and a statistician to say, hey, we're seeing this kind of conclusively, like yeah. you do see in other realms of, of your research. I worry about some of the high-profile claims. Mm. Um, th th there's this this book, The Confidence Code, which I liked a lot. It's a, it's a great book and has a lot of things going for it. Some of the fun parts of the book is where they go and talk to high-profile, successful women, women leading the World Bank or uh, athletic champions, and ask them, do you ever experience self-doubt? And they say, yes. And then they ask these women, do you think the men in roles like yours experience self-doubt? And they say, nah. But they don't go and talk to the men. Of course, <laughs> right. everyone experiences self-doubt from at one point or other. And if the lesson to take from this, even if there is a gender difference, if the lesson is, ladies, you got to step up your game and be as overconfident as the men, that seems like terrible advice. 
Don, this has been a fantastic conversation. Is there anything that we didn't get to, you feel very passionate about, I did not ask that you want to address here? Oh, man. We did a good job covering a lot of territory. Something that we just touched on, which I want to underscore a little more heavily, and that, and that is the value of thinking probabilistically. That uh, life is full of so many uncertainties that having well-calibrated confidence really depends on admitting your uh, imperfections, your uncertainties about the future, and thinking in probabilistic terms. Your willingness to do so, I, I have to say, comes with some really powerful and somewhat surprising benefits. So many of us wind up beating ourselves up for our failures to predict uh, uncertain futures, whether that be like how a colleague will react when you deliver bad news to how some investment will perform, how an employee that you're thinking of hiring will perform on the job. Like we want to pretend that we can predict these things with certainty, but in reality, it's really hard. And accepting that the best we can do is some probabilistic estimate. Yeah, this person, their resume was strong and their references were great and they really impressed us all in the interview, but that's not a guarantee they're going to perform well. That relieving yourself of the, the myth of certainty also relieves yourself of some of the regret that we're vulnerable to when our faux certainty turns out to be wrong, right? When that employee turns out to be a disappointment or when they do something terrible or unethical or, or harass colleagues, then you, you're left scratching your head and feeling guilty and tracking back and trying to think, oh, what did I miss? Well, so it's worth trying to learn and, and seeing if you can do better in the future. But the whole idea that you could with certainty, identify the perfect employee who was never going to have a problem and who was going to rise meteorically in the ranks. Well, no, you can't. Hiring is a really fraught, uncertain, probabilistic process. And admitting your own imperfection relieves you of this uh, of sort of painful and unproductive feelings of self-recrimination and regret. Letting go of the myth of certainty and admitting our imperfection. Um, good way to keep ourselves humble, calibrate our confidence, and end this fantastic conversation that we will continue. <laughs> and and <laughs> we, we very much focused on what individuals can do. There is a whole nother topic, which is your expertise and your other books. I want to have you back to talk about how organizations and leaders can design, structure, their cultures, systems, processes, so that we don't have some of the binds that we talked about earlier that many honest and good executives uh, face, and many of them face it out there. Can't wait. So we'll come back. Thank you, Don. How, how do people best reach you in your work? 
Oh, goodness. Well, so my books are probably the most accessible version of that. Uh, slightly less accessible would be my articles. So they sort of run the gamut from popular press outlets to more accessible magazines like California Management Review or Harvard Business Review. And really committed listeners might want to suffer through some of my academic writings if they're feeling particularly courageous. Occasionally, I'm on Twitter at Don Andrew Moore, but my postings there are few and far between. Very good. I will include all of those in the show notes, including the ones that I referenced myself, which are great pieces of research. Thank you so much, Don. It's great to have you. Thanks, Michael. I enjoyed this a lot. Thanks for listening to 97% Effective, where we skip happy talk and help you break through and ascend one hard truth at a time. Help others discover this show. Leave a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, you can get free resources, including the first chapters of Michael's book, Get Promoted, on his website, www.changwinderoth.com. That's www.changwenderoth.com. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.